Open with me to the book of Psalms, if you have a Bible. The book of Psalms. We're going to be in Psalm 139 this morning. And we're going to focus our time together in those last two verses of Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. I'll give you a, a bit to turn there. Psalm 139, 23 and 24. As Marcus mentioned, this is my last official sermon as pastor on staff here at Redeemer. And I've been thinking uh, for a while about what I wanted to uh, leave you with. Uh, you may be familiar, many universities have established this tradition of hosting uh, a last lecture series. Has anybody heard of that before? A last lecture series where, quote, they would have top academics, they would be asked to think deeply about what matters most to them, and, the, and then to give a hypothetical final talk. In other words, what wisdom would you try to impart to the world if you knew this was your last chance? That was the mission of this last lecture series that many universities do. You, you, you may be familiar with the book, The Last Lecture, by Randy Pausch. It was published in 2008. Randy was a professor of computer science at uh, Carnegie Mellon University. And a month before delivering his already scheduled last lecture at the university in September of 2007, he received the prognosis that his uh, pancreatic cancer was terminal. This was coincidentally uh, the same week that we founded our church. Randy Pausch did deliver his last lecture there at, at Carnegie Mellon, and then he passed away several months later. But his, his lecture, which was entitled uh, Really Achieving Your Childhood Dreams, uh, was published just before his death. And then it stayed on the New York Times bestseller list for, uh, I think, 112 weeks. Pretty Pretty impressive for a last lecture. There's something especially engaging about uh, a last lecture kind of series, right? There's something especially engaging about what, what the content of a person's message uh, would be if, if he or she thinks it would be his or her last to a particular community. Something that keeps a lecture like that on the New York Times bestseller list for years, right? This kind of message is often infused with a special kind of, uh, of, of importance or relevance. I, I'm thinking even about uh, Paul's second letter to Timothy. In, in fact, I think uh, it's on the preaching schedule for May later this year. Paul's second letter to Timothy is a kind of last lecture. This is the last letter we have of his correspondence with his spiritual son, Timothy, and, and likely the last letter that he wrote uh, that was included in Scripture. And in addition to uh, concluding Paul's letter to Timothy with this typical closing phrase of grace be with you, Paul adds to the end uh, this really beautiful line at the end of 2 Timothy. And he says, the Lord be with your spirit, which is an interesting phrase for us to consider. The Lord be with your spirit. It's really a call to awareness of God's presence. I'm also reminded, if you think back to Jesus' last instructions to his disciples in the upper room, just before his arrest, just before his crucifixion, and, and his, his last moments of prayer with his disciples in Gethsemane. And again, it's interesting, in, in Jesus' final moments with his closest friends, he simply asked them to uh, sit with him and to pray with him bringing them into the presence of God. 
calling them to uh, a unique kind of contemplation and awareness of God's presence. And when I, when I reflect back on these uh, past 14 years of ministry in this community, I can honestly say that this is really what I was after. I can honestly say that this is probably where I felt most myself when we would experience collectively as a community these sacred moments in prayer and in song, in, in, in the word, at the communion table, sacred moments of, of contemplation and awareness. Those, aren't, those, aren't, those are hard to come by in a, in a frenetic, busy, hectic, overscheduled world of distraction. And frankly, of a world really focused inward on ourselves. And so it's hard to open our minds up to what God is doing. When we shared those sacred moments of awareness of God's presence, uh, or, or when we would experience, even for just a brief moment, what we just sang, in the words of uh, Helen Limmel, who wrote this, this hymn that we just sang, The Heavenly Vision, where she writes, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. There's something really powerful about that hymn, right? That's why it rings so true for so many of us. And this is really what I've been after, a sense of sacredness and awareness of God's presence, an intentional gazing upon and contemplation of God that, that produces a change in our hearts and in our minds, something that's transformative. Of course, there are many very important aspects of pastoral ministry, but again, this is what I was really after. This is where I felt uh, most honest and probably most myself. And this is what I want to do together this morning. This isn't really a typical sermon. Instead, I want us to focus on just these two verses, and I want, to, I want us to do our best to focus deeply on this passage. I want us to gain an awareness of God's presence, and as we, as we gaze upon God, I want us to allow Him, too, uh, to gaze upon us. Two, in, in, in King David's words, who writes this, for God to search us. This is what you might call in the field of spiritual formation, uh, meditation on God's word. It's, a, it's, it's not just reading, it's meditating on the word. In Latin, it would be referred to as Lectio Divina, a, a sacred reading of the text. So let's, let's look together at Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. We don't have a screen this morning, but, um, but you can pull it up uh, in your Bible on your phone. Uh, and I, I encourage you to follow along, um, and, and we're going to read this passage several times together, uh, but you're also welcome to even just uh, to sit and, and close your eyes, maybe as we read it once or twice, and to, to have it read over you, to, to receive it, as it were. Let me read these verses for us. It's a very powerful passage. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, David says this, Search me, O God. And know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Can we just let the, the weight of that, of that kind of request sink in? 
I'm hoping that this would be our, our prayer together as, as men and as women, as, as children, as fathers and mothers, as sons and daughters, as sinners in need of a Savior. Search me, O oh God. Know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. This is, this is the poet King David. Remember, he's, this is, a, this is a, a man very well aware of his own fallenness and brokenness, of his own sin. We, we spent several months you know, in the summer reading through many of the Psalms. We know that David sort of, he, he gets it. And this is a song he's writing to be sung among his people in the congregation. The the psalm of self-awareness, of God-awareness. This is an invitation to God. And, And really, I mean, I think if we're honest, this is a terrifying kind of prayer to pray. There's such vulnerability here. There's such honesty here. There's such courage here. And we see this this staccato list of imperative verbs, these requests from David to God. Search me, O God. Know my thoughts. Know know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. That that word there, thoughts, it's interesting when you look through several other translations, um, translators sort of flip-flop between translating that idolatrous concerns or anxious concerns. That's kind of what the word connotes, is this kind of anxiety. And, and it's interesting that, that when, our, when our hearts go to worshiping another God, when our hearts go and give attention to something other than God, our, our anxiety increases. He says, I want you to look inside my anxious, idolatrous heart. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And then there's this call for God to to intervene. Lead me in the way everlasting. You guys know that my my undergraduate experience was in biblical languages. And so I'm sort of always digging into these passages and seeing what are these these words getting at? What is is the writer trying to communicate? And and you see these these verbs kind of pop out throughout this passage when he's saying, search me, O God, explore me, examine me thoroughly. Uh, Another word, and I think maybe even a better word, is expose me. He says, I want you to know my heart. The the word know there is the same word that's used in Genesis 4, uh, where it says, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived a son. So this kind of this kind of know, this kind of knowing this kind of knowledge is experience experiential knowledge this intimate connected vulnerable exposed kind of knowing. David is saying, "I want you to know me like that. I want you to I want you to see me. I want you to experience what's happening in my heart. I want to be vulnerable, naked. Try me, scrutinize me, test me." See if there be any grievous way in me. Talking essentially about motivation. 
Look into me, gaze into me, God, and then lead me, put me, guide me into this right path. Here's, here's my translation. Expose me, O oh God, and get inside my heart. Probe and scrutinize my concerns and gaze deeply into my motivation and put me in the way of life everlasting. What is God exposing in us as we read a passage like that? What is in your heart? You, you, may, you may even feel, you may get a sense of the Spirit's voice as you read it. That's not like reading the newspaper, right? It's not even like reading Shakespeare. There's something, this is a living word that's doing something in our hearts. What, what, where does our mind go? What's grievous in us? What is that grievous way that we're in? What is the way everlasting? How are we led to it? And, and you'll notice that, that the, the word he's, he's saying there is, is way, right? This grievous way or this way everlasting. So this isn't, this isn't destination necessarily. This is about trajectory. This is what, what kind of path am I in? What, what river am I floating down? What, what grievous way? It, what motivates me? What's driving me? And what is that path to life? It's not about necessarily where I am, but where am I headed? What emotions are you experiencing when you read a passage like that? This is... This is what it means to meditate on God's word. This is what we're doing right now. To, to intentionally, thoughtfully turn, turn your face in your life toward God, to, to sit in his presence, to gaze upon him, and then to allow him to gaze upon you, to see you. It can be, you know, it can be frightening to pray a prayer like this. It can be uh, liberating to pray a prayer like this. It can, be, uh, it can be difficult to steady your thoughts, right? It's easy for us to be distracted. It's certainly easy for us to be distracted out here. That's okay. Don't, don't be too hard on yourself. Don't beat yourself up. Feel what you feel. You're, you're bringing yourself. You're, you're bringing your honest self before God. You're saying, I want you, God, to search me and know me. And in, in being known in that way, in that Genesis 4 kind of way, I can know you better. And you will lead me in that path of life everlasting. It's interesting that this, this, these two verses come at the end of this passage. The psalm, you know, when you're reading, this is a fairly long psalm. When you're reading the psalm, it just ends there, which is pretty unsatisfying, right? It just stops with that request from David. We, essentially, we don't get the other side of the conversation, right? We don't, we don't get God's response to David's plea. He just leaves us there. Exposed, essentially. David notes earlier in this psalm that God knows him deeply. He says, you know when I sit down, you know when I rise up, you, you discern my thoughts from afar. This is all very confessional. You search out my path, there's that word again, my lying down, you're acquainted with all my ways. 
Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. He's, he's just recounting. He's just kind of looking around. He's, he's thinking about his life. He's got, I have, I have nothing in my life that's hidden from you. Even if I want it to be hidden from you, I can't hide anything from you. Even before a word or a thought is there, you know it completely. You hem me in behind me, before me. You, you lay your hand upon me. And he says, such, such knowledge, I, it's hard to even think about. Such knowledge is too wonderful to me. I can't even attain this kind of knowledge. But I'm getting a sense of, you, you see what David is doing? He's entering into this sort of stream of mystery, of big godness, right? He's saying, I know these things to be true. I'm confessing these truths to you. And yet, I'm, even as I'm doing it, I'm sort of stunned into contemplation because, God, you are bigger than I am. Your mind is bigger than mine. And David confesses that he cannot escape God's spirit. He says, if I'm in heaven, God, you're there. If I'm in Sheol, which is like the place of the dead, the place of the grave, God, even, even in Sheol, you are there. If I'm up in the clouds with the eagles, God, you're there. If I'm in the depths of the sea, you are there. Even in the darkness, you are there. I couldn't hide if I wanted to, which is terrifying, right? But also really comforting because David knows that God sees him, but he goes to him. He knows God knows him completely. He'll even say specifically, you formed my, in, my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. And yet David, David consciously and intentionally brings his life and his heart before the all-knowing God. This is important for us. You know, some of us struggle to pray because we think, well, God knows everything. Or we struggle to confess our sins because we think, well, God knows everything. Or we, or we think, or we try to hide in certain ways, but we know that God knows. And, and sometimes that leaves us with shame. And yet there's this, there's this compelling lesson for us to learn here in that even, even that knowledge of God's awareness should not just produce in you, should not just stop you in your tracks, but should actually compel you even in that knowledge to bring all of that before him. It's as much for you as it is for him. You're not, you're not telling him anything he doesn't know, but there's something in bringing that to him. Though David knows God sees, he still invites him to look. And not only to look, but also to lead him. One commentator, Old Testament professor James Mays, in his commentary says, The psalmist wants God to be his judge so that God can also be his shepherd. Being, being led means being exposed, being searched. John Phillips in his commentary said, The psalmist was no hypocrite. He knew there were depths of wickedness lurking in his own heart. He knew his secret lusts. And like a sensible man faced with an omniscient God, he did not try to hide his inner thoughts. What futility. Instead, he opened them up to God's inspection. There's something about praying a prayer like this. There's something about praying a prayer like this regularly. Just, just imagine if, um, well, let's just say for five minutes. 
let's just say for five minutes, even once a week, let's say for five minutes once a week, you prayed this prayer and you committed it to memory and you internalized it and you opened yourself up to that kind of scrutiny. What kind of life might that produce after 5, 10, 15, 20 years? What if you prayed this with your spouse? John Phillips goes on. He says, he, he, David, David opens up his inner thoughts to God. He opens himself up to God's inspection. He pleaded that the Lord would lead him in the way everlasting, that not only his inward life, but his outward life too might be pleasing to the God. He cannot escape. Let me read you my translation again. Expose me, O God. Get inside my heart. Probe and scrutinize my concerns and gaze deeply into my motivation and put me in the way of life everlasting. God is aware of us. He's aware of all of us. He's aware of every part of us. And he, he wants us to be more and more aware of him, more aware of his mercy towards us, more aware of his love towards us, more aware of his plans for us, and, and more aware of the life that he has for us in this path everlasting. As you read and consider a passage like this, it, it, as you listen for the voice of the Spirit, it might, even helpful, it might be helpful for you to, uh, to journal some thoughts. What, what is God speaking to you? What do you, what do you hear him saying? What is he revealing? What, what might God be calling you towards? What might God be calling you away from? Because you see there's these two opposing paths here, right? This grievous way or this way everlasting. When I think about my uh, last lecture, as it were, what, what, what I hope to leave you with is both a sense of God's presence and also a method for becoming more aware of it. That's what meditation on scripture does. It, it draws us into God's presence and it feeds our soul. And I, I, hope, um, I hope that you sensed that as we read that passage. I hope that as you read that passage, you were, you were challenged, sure, but that you were also nourished. You were, you were fed. Church, we were, we were built to feast on the word of God to be nourished by this food. There's a, a philosophy professor, uh, Robert Roberts, so easy to remember. Um, he retired from Baylor a few years ago. He was actually at Wheaton College for many years. Did you know Robert Roberts? Um, he was a philosophy professor. He, he wrote, I came across this phrase he wrote uh, a year or so ago, and it stuck with me. He wrote that, that we are God's people, verbivores, V-E-R-B, verbivores. We were, we were made to feast on, live on God's words. He, he writes that whoever feeds on the word of God, whoever, whoever, whoever does not take the word into himself, ruminate upon it, swallow it, digest it into his very psyche, his soul, starves himself as truly as someone who quit eating physical food altogether. Some, some of us may be starving 
aching, fatigued. And this was Jesus' response, you remember, in, in the wilderness. This was his response to Satan's temptation. After, after a 40-day fast, Jesus was tempted to turn stones into bread to feed himself, but he responded to Satan's temptation with this bold declaration, qu- quoting from the Old Testament, and he said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. In his most desperate moment, in his weakest, most vulnerable moment, He was making this confession that I I am built to feast on this word. And this is my prayer for us as a people, as as the family of God, that we would would have uh, an appetite for this kind of food. That our palate would develop to take in this feast. And that we would feast on it, that we would be nourished by this food, that we would, that, and that we would live lives in, in the presence of our all-seeing, all-knowing God who searches us, who knows us, who loves us, and who leads us in this way of life everlasting, which is to say that God calls us to himself, in whom are all pleasures and all joys. That's what God is doing to us as we're reading his word. So I want us to I want us to pray together. We'll, we'll 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 close. I want to take just a few minutes of of silence, a few minutes of of quietness. I'm going to read this passage again, and then, and we'll close in prayer. So let's take a moment. You may may look over this text. Maybe pray. Maybe just listen. Search us, O God. Know our hearts. We pray that you would try us, that you would know our thoughts, our anxious, idolatrous thoughts. And Lord, see if there be any grievous way among us. And God, as your people, as your church, as your sons and daughters, lead us in the way everlasting. My God, we love you. We confess that we need you. We confess that we need this food. My God, I pray that we would be a people who take in this feast. God, there are so many distractions. There are so many uh, things competing for our time and for our attention, for our affection. God, I pray that you would bring us back to this word. God, I pray that we would bring, we would bring our, our lives under your gaze. God, that we would work to see you, God, that you would see us. God, that we could rest in you. God, we cannot escape your spirit. 
We don't want to. Help us learn how to sit with you in your presence, to listen, to hear from you. And God, we pray that that would transform our hearts, that would transform our minds. God, that would transform our speech, how we care for one another. God, how we live and lead and serve as parents, as children, as a spouse. God, help us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for these, these moments of contemplation. God, we thank you that your word is alive, that your word is a sword, that it pierces to our, our inner core. We thank you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.